ending nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw today. Oh, oh, it's almost April Fool. No, it's not April Fool. It's the 30th. Thursday is April Fool, the 1st. Oh, my God. Easter's coming, folks. We gotta get resurrected. (laughs) It gets harder for me every year, you know? Actually, I don't mind. Uh, I have some notes here that said... Try to talk about arrows, Jennifer. Try to be upbeat, because you're getting to sound like an old, what is it, an old pedant. And I think I'm worn out with all this. Uh, is it, they call it the, the uh, populist rage coming from the right. And I listened half the night, I listened to these screwballs, and I thought my parents always... Um, said that Americans, you know, were uh, classic screwballs. Um, <laughs> the great the great Oscar Wilde in one of the plays, he has, uh, oh yes, he has this wonderful line, he says, Ignorance is a delicate, exotic fruit. Touch it and the bloom is gone. <laughs> I don't know. I still think it would be a wonderful thing if it were possible to enlighten some of our citizens. However, I have accepted the fact that since, oh, say, 1980 and Ronald Reagan, we have had no liberal education in the public schools of any kind. So, there you are. Uh, I don't know what is to be done about it. Uh, Mostly, I worry that Americans are losing their sense of humor. Uh, I don't think that the president has lost his sense of humor. He's having dinner with the the French, um, what's his name, Sarkozy, that guy that's running France with the beautiful model wife. That's going to be terrific. I, I can't wait to see the the pundits have a fit because he's Frenchified Michel and uh, that gorgeous uh, woman from France. It'll look like the old French royalty and uh, <laughs> remember Jackie Kennedy. I think she thought that she was uh, uh, one of the queens of France. Uh, anyway, I gave up last night, and I, I took a little pile of books, and I I thought, well, I'll go over them again. Um, they're the, the books that tell us about the revolution coming from the right. And I thought, well, I think... Huh. I think I'll wait till it happens. I always wait for signs of, oh, it was like the Weimar Republic. It's like my little theme song from Three Penny Opera, you know. Uh, 
it's the uh, what do you call it the, the periods in history when things morph into fascism and uh, I think our, our trip is going to be entirely different I do have a book that I'm going to bring maybe next time called the Turner Diaries and I, I'm afraid of it because I don't want to recommend it in case somebody should you know pay money for it it's um, a piece of vicious propaganda by Andrew McDonald. Actually, uh, the guy who wrote it has since died, thank God. But <laughs> it's it's one of these horror stories. Uh, it's all about the revolution coming from the right. It's this completely banal little story, and it it shows you, you know, how to lynch movie stars and everything. And the story about this book that scares me is that it was apparently the uh, constant companion of Timothy McVeigh in the years before he blew up the federal building in Oklahoma. Uh, sad, 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 sad. Uh, it's loaded with racist propaganda. It's a blueprint for the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, the fact is that it's, yeah, it's almost exactly what he did. Uh, right, taking all the big shots to be hanged, the... <laughs> <laughs> the politicians, mostly, mostly the actresses, right? One famous actress, a notorious race mixer who had starred in several large budget interracial love epics. Uh, they're hanging her uh, in public. He said, you want to teach people a lesson. You know, she's lost most of her hair and eyes, several teeth, not to mention all her clothes uh, before the rope was put around her neck. Anyway, I won't go on with these descriptions um, what he has to say about Jews and blacks and so forth. Uh, oh, okay. And then there are even white men who have to wear these placards saying, I betrayed my race and so on. Anyway, this book is a piece of junk, but the fact is we cannot ignore this stuff. We ignore it at our peril. It's called The Turner Diaries, and the author is Andrew McDonald. Actually, he was a living up in Oregon. He had a mail-order wife. I saw him interviewed on television in his little um, studio full of pictures of uh, some major Nazis, uh, Hitler and all of those folks. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, what is it? Um, it's the sort of thing that makes me want to go back in the classroom and try to talk to high school students about mind control thought police, that kind of thing. I guess we should start with Orwell. But today is today is Easter. It's coming up to Easter. And Sunday, we're going to have all those wonderful Easter egg hunts. And I have plans, and I want to watch the children. And so I'm going to dive right in to an essay that I've had for years. Let's see, where did I put it here? It's all about the imperative of intimacy. And I started writing about that subject, the imperative of intimacy, years and years ago. And I remember that uh, it was that point, uh, I guess the 80s, when everyone was making a fuss because they said feminism was spoiling their love life. <laughs> and I thought, okay... This is true. The young women would say, oh, don't make me read that book or study that uh, essay because it might make me hate men. 
And I said, oh, my God, you know, uh, uh, women don't hate men. If they did, it would all be over by Friday. The problem, of course, is that women are terminal romantics. And they, uh, what is it, they put all their eggs in one basket as it, as it, uh, well, I, I wish, I wish there were a better way of putting it. Um, because, of course, romance is always worth it. I was listening to, of all people, Gene Wilder on the radio this morning talking about love and his love for his wife. And, you know, he's that famous comedian. Anyway, this this essay that I wrote years ago, I used a book written by a friend, Alicia Susskind Ostricker. Now, she's got lots of collections, bits of poetry. Actually, the last book of poems she wrote uh, was called The Crack in Everything. Alicia's such a wonderful woman. She teaches at Rutgers. Anyway, I haven't talked to her for so long. I hope she's still teaching at Rutgers. Anyway, her book was Stealing the Language, The Emergence of Women's Poetry in America. And I remember using it here on KPFA and keeping notes. Uh, basically, it's all about the imperative of intimacy and the revolution of touch. Old Annie Sexton, she used to say, yes, touch, wow, or resurrection. I'm a mythomaniac. In male mythology, Eros and Thanatos are both guys. You know, love and death, both personified as male. Now, that's totally weird. I have a footnote here. Uh, last week, I started reading The Myths of Avalon, and I've been reading that most nights, trying to cheer myself up. That's the one about all of the women in the mythology of King Arthur, you know, the uh, women from the old pre-Christian, pre-patriarchal religions, uh, Morgan Le Fay. Anyway, uh, because most Western literature and art is based on the old Greco-Roman stories, you know, we get Eros and Thanatos as guys, uh, the female equivalents, well, we'll talk about those some other day because uh, uh, the feminists are trying to get into the act again. And I think that's reasonable. I, I, have, I have several women friends. I give them the names of various goddesses, but it doesn't always work. Too many Aphrodite is around my house. Anyway, uh, women insist that they are on the side of the angels. They don't like to be the dark, uh, they don't like to be Kali, the goddess of destruction. But of course, uh, they're both. They want to be on the side of Eros, the good guy. All of us, you know, say that we prefer the love gods to the gods of death and destruction. I think that that, that whole business of there being opposites... That's what's wrong with the West. They are, of course, two sides of the same coin called life. Enlightened women who have been awakened to that Zen end of things are perfectly well aware there's a flip side to everything. You know how that goes. Last week I was talking about how sentimentality is the flip side of violence. If you've seen this new television show, The Pacific, about World War II... 
I was horrified to... Well, I, I only watched it for maybe 15 minutes, so it's not fair to critique it yet, but... Uh, it's awfully good, I'm afraid, um, the cinematography and so on. Um, but, uh, once again, um, it's the romance of young men. Guys wind up dead and the girls wind up pregnant if we don't get them through their 20s at least, you know. Personally, I'm not often in favor of extremes when it comes to love or death, uh, <laughs> but that doesn't make them go away. I want to look at the existence of women, and I want to figure out whether or not their influence on our culture at large might just make things a bit more loving and kind of less less deadly, you know, like, um, oh, uh, Nancy Pelosi trying to be maternal and tell these people that uh, we should take care of one another. And that health care is a human right, you know, the sort of thing. Saying to the president, let us neither waffle nor mince. Let us be men and go um, take care of the people. Anyway, <clears throat> there is some evidence that women do want to get away from the death culture, Thanatos. They want to get back to Eros, uh, at least have it on the front burner. Women poets seem to be into that sort of thing. Men seem split between their subversive longing for the feminine, that is the uncontrolled world, in which mystery is the only reality, and their deep need to please their fathers. Now, we all know that uh, fathers, well, they have this aspect of um, Gertrude Stein used to say that uh, feudal days were the days of the fathers. The sort of fathers who believe that they can control their world, that they can be God, in fact. <laughs> yes, the wisest of the male poets have always tried to convince us that the feminine can be fun and that Eros is eternal youth. Edna St. Vincent Millay writes about Love in the open hand, what was it she called it, uh, bringing her love, like apples in a skirt. Anyway, you know, we know it can be had for the asking if we're just willing to let go of ourselves, not think we have something to lose, you know how that is. So many men feel that they they mustn't give themselves away. Now, Alicia Ostricker's book, Stealing the Language, The Emergence of Women's Poetry in America, was published a long time ago by Beacon Press. Let's see. It was published in 1986. And uh, Alicia Ostricker is the kind of poet scholar who's never without her notebook and, <laughs> and a bottle of wine. I met her first in the early 1970s at the Berkeley Poets Workshop. Alicia's patience and concern with the individual poets was my introduction into a new world. She was a wonderful teacher. When I was growing up, artists and poets competed. They were into criticizing each other, 
you know. Basically, what they said was, I wouldn't have written that. <laughs> Now, Alicia knew that we work for the sake of the work itself, uh, and that it doesn't work to crush confidence to say uh, to each other, no, 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 that is not the way of it. Gertrude Stein used to say that she needed someone to say yes to the writing. She found Alice B. Toklas to say yes to her. Now, Alicia did not suffer fools gladly. She was unfailingly kind, you know, but she always said what had to be said. She had style. When we talked about my work, she did not come right out and say, oh, stop wringing your hands, get on with it. Uh, she always smiled enigmatically, sort of sighed over my nihilism and despair. And she would say, oh, Jennifer, who needs another wasteland? In chapter five of her book, uh, she has, uh, the title of the chapter is Female Erotics, Female Poetics. She quotes another friend of mine, the poet Alta. Alta writes, I felt the joy of being a body of being inside a body, of another body being inside my body, the unbearable joy. Last night I was reading The Mists of Avalon and there's a scene in there, of course, in which uh, Arthur, King Arthur-to-be, is out running with the stags, right? The horned one, he's the horned god. And through some mysterious accident, he sleeps with his half-sister, uh, Morgane, Morgan Le Fay. And the description of their lovemaking is definitely, definitely for, what is it, for adolescents, I thought it was a kick. Uh, there's a movie of the Mists of Avalon. They did that scene very well. Um, uh, pagan... Yes, pagan great marriages, the priestess in her temple. Uh, she doesn't know who she's making love to. It's just, you know, sex at midsummer or something. Anyway, that movie, um, I know I have it around the house somewhere. Uh, Angelica Houston played the goddess. And uh, it's, what was it? I think it was, it was, I think it was six or eight hours long. It was quite a film. Uh, anyway. Things get touchy, you know, when we write about sex or talk about sex. Uh, gender benders abound. Men say that they love this or that. And, uh, oh, yes, they, they always like things to be natural. Yes, that loose curl at the neck. Uh, then years ago, along comes Leonore Candell. And she started, well, she talked like a man a little bit. She said she loved to... F. I can't use that word on KPFA. My goodness, yes. She loved to uh, F. Most of the men I knew thought that that was too aggressive. Wow. Hmm. I still remember some men who could handle a woman like that. But the words mean such different things to men and women. It takes a lifetime to sort this out. Uh, a course in sex mantics, maybe. Um... Gertrude Stein's lover, 
Alice B. Toklas was called the Rose of the World. That's what Gertrude calls her. And she was, well, she describes the clitoris of Alice B. Toklas, but she would never use that word. Alice wouldn't even use the word seduce. <laughs> Compromise would be the, the word that Alice B. Toklas would use. A rose by any other name would not smell quite the same when Henry Miller writes. Uh, well, there's another word here I can't use. My goodness, it's the C word. And he says it's a dead loss. Perhaps it's almost exclusively a masculine word. I wonder why I don't use it in my own work. It's not that women are more refined than men. That's nonsense invented by some male prudes. Uh, <laughs> I remember my own son was somewhat offended. Once I was doing a play, I think he was 16, and I had written the play, and there were some, some, let's call it, uh, let's call it, uh, body, body words in it. And I think it upset him. Uh, there's a difference in perception. I think, um, see, in the old religion, the C word describes the entrance to heaven. Eros, yes. Or it could be the entrance to hell, Thanatos. Uh, but I remember once uh, there was a poem in our workshop. Uh, ah, the young man used the words, Beloved Pussy, which word can be used on the air. I checked it out. But... <laughs> I said, I don't think he, the two words together, they kind of contradict each other, I said to him. Now, I believe that one of the problems here is that many women mistake lust for love. This morning on the air, Gene Wilder was funny. He said that he's writing, he was talking about a story he'd written, and he said that the man in the story had uh, given up on love. He was not able to find love. He had to settle for sex. Now, there are some people who think that one can lead to the other. Uh, I remember as a college girl, one of our professors, he told us that women confuse lust with love and that men do not. Uh, you know how that is. Women think that uh, if some guy makes a pass at them, that that, <laughs> that means affection. Anyway. We have to mistake lust for love. If you ask me, how else could we get along? Uh, uh, loving lust is not a concept which is easy for most people. I think, I think we're coming around to it, though. I've seen signs of loving lust. In a man's world, lust seems to be dangerous or even violent. D.H. Lawrence once wrote that he found Charlotte Bronte's novel... Jane Eyre to be verging on the pornographic that's pretty funny since of course uh, most people nowadays think that it's very Victorian and, and virginal anyway D.H. Lawrence writes of the suppressed smoldering sexuality of Jane Eyre he thinks it's a bit indecent unhealthy even of course, he's describing her romanticism, truly sublimation into soap opera, is one of 
the masochistic routes that female Eros takes, just as repressed Eros in males often erupts into violence. This is so confusing. Uh, you know, these days we use sex and violence always in the same sentence, and uh, we have to dig deep into the psychiatric, um, the psychiatric negative voice. I was thinking of Freud the other night, and it's funny about Freud, you know, he got it wrong, but he got it. Uh, about these words, the words themselves, I think of letters that I got from editors, male editors mostly, maybe a few women. Uh, I'm still confused by a woman editor. She, write, she wrote to tell me how much she liked my work, but that her editorial board, all women, they felt that there was too much male imagery. I looked over the material that I'd sent the story. All I could find was a broken beer bottle and uh, oh, a couple of other things that seemed to be more linear than <laughs> than circular. Often, when I imagine I'm writing sensual poetry, male editors complain. If they don't like something, a poem or word, um, they describe it the way... I would describe female sexuality, uh, things they don't like. They say things like, you're being free associative, abstract, diffuse, fragmented, loose, repetitious, tangential, muted, subjective, circular, dreamlike, intangible. <laughs> D.H. Lawrence once said that only that which is Utterly intangible matters. Now, there's some word tangling, yes. Only that which is intangible matters. The matter is all that matters, my goodness. Only the matter matters. This sort of thing can drive you nuts. Uh, David Herbert Lawrence, why don't you read what you write? Why don't you try to be less subjective? I'm very fond of David Herbert Lawrence. He loved his mother. Henry Miller hated his mother. You see, you see there is... They're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Uh, the most irritating editors, most of them male, are the guys who try to help you. You know, they, they feel that they need to teach. It's very sweet. I have a pile of letters from male editors uh, who exhibit what I can only call a phallocentric focus. They want me to follow the main thrust, stick to the point, tighten it up, strengthen the climax, simplify the action, and keep the lights on, literally. <laughs> now, none of this can be helped, I suppose. Human beings are biological units. I am always reminding beginning writers that women learn from the plants and men learn from the animals. That's why women sit down and men stand up. 
women look around. They tend to have what is called field-relevant vision. That is, they can see these little circles or life cycles out of the corner of their eye. Most men prefer to look straight ahead. This laser look is very powerful, and sometimes women think it means the man loves them. When reality tells them that the force of that look is meant to subdue them. Now, perhaps from a male perspective, that is what love means. The rest of my essay goes on to explain all these metaphors that men and women use, all the ways in which they misunderstand each other so beautifully. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Want to support women in the arts? Saturday, April 24th, Women's Will presents Playfest, an evening of performances of the winning plays from its contest for female playwrights. Tickets also include wine, hors d'oeuvres, and a silent auction, featuring donations from theater companies, restaurants, and services. Playfest is a benefit for Women's Will, a non-profit, multi-ethnic theater company best known for its free all-female Shakespeare performances in Bay Area parks. You're invited for fun, food, and original theater on April 24th at the Burial Clay Theater, 762 Fulton Street in San Francisco, with free parking right next door. Silent auction at 7 p.m., curtain at 8. Tickets are $20, and seating is limited. For more information, go to womenswill.org.